Well, good evening to all of you. It's a real honor uh, to be with you and uh, to be thinking about this this week that we're going to share together. And so I know a lot of you. Uh, I probably know more faces than I do names, though. And uh, a lot of you I just have a great deal of respect and appreciation for. And uh, some of you have probably even touched my life uh, just from a distance as I've watched and learned from some of you. Well, um, my wife and children are along this evening. Um, We have five children. Our oldest is 16, and our youngest is eight. And so um, we feel like we're still learning because God is using our children to teach us a lot of things as well. Well, this evening, uh, this week, we're going to be thinking about God's story in education. And uh, just to call your attention to a couple words here, God's story. Um, We're thinking about scripture, but I've chosen to use God's story for a reason. And we'll unpack that as we go. And hopefully when we're done, you'll realize why I chose Uh, God's story. We're also thinking about education. Now, I'm a teacher, and uh, I've been in school for most of my life. Um, I enjoy school. I don't just enjoy teaching, but I enjoy learning. And, but this week, I'm thinking about education in a broader sense, not just in school. Sure, that's within view of what we're thinking about. But I'm thinking about education in context of what happens in our homes, in our Sunday schools, in our community as a, at large. And so when, we, when we're thinking about education, we're thinking of it as one big uh, package. So um, this week, uh, where are we going? Here are the topics that we're going to be looking at. Tonight, we are going to look at people of the story and I got the wrong PowerPoint. Okay, just bear with me here. Imagine that. So what was that man saying about always being prepared and he said those nice words? And about the time I was starting to feel really good about myself, uh, God humbled me. So here we go. And, And I came just in the nick of time, too. How about that? Like the last minute. Okay. Now I think we're ready to go. So that's where we're going. Uh, People of the story is what we're talking about tonight. We're going to trace the story tomorrow night. The third night, we're going to talk about how the story lights the way for what we see in God's world. The fourth night, we're going to talk about living the story. And then the fifth night, we're going to think about challenges that are on the horizon. Now, I recognize that some of you have heard me talk about some of these kinds of things already. And I apologize for that. I don't mean to bore you. Um, You might hear me saying things you've already heard. Um, people of the story, that's where we're going tonight. And uh, I want to call our attention to the verse uh, that David wrote in Psalms, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
And so uh, I do have a question that I want us to start with tonight. And the question that I'm asking is, what is the essence of Christian education? What's the essence? Now, I know in a group this size, it's sometimes hard to get people to speak up and participate. But I do want some participation. And so I invite your questions or if at any time uh, you want some clarification on something I said, you just feel free to raise your hand and let it be known. But um, I'm going to ask you to turn and talk to some people around you here in a moment. And I'm going to ask you to try together to get at what you think is the essence of Christian education. But just to help us think about what we mean by essence, I'll use a simple analogy. Um, if you take an egg omelet, and uh, great egg omelets might have things like cheese and bacon, and, and uh, maybe you'll put some ham in, whatever you like to put in your omelet. Uh, what makes an egg omelet is the egg that's fried, right? Uh, the cheese and the bacon and all those things don't make an omelet. And so... I want you to ask, or I want you to think about the question, what is the essence of Christian education? If you boil it all down, what is it? What is it that makes it Christian? Okay, so just for maybe a minute or two, um, I'd like to all of a sudden hear lots of fellowship. So we want to make some noise here, but I'd like you to talk to the people beside you and uh, try to Put your finger on what you think is the essence of Christian education. Go. Okay, all the older, wiser people are turning to face me. They're done. So they've got it figured out. So call some things out. What is the essence of Christian education? In a couple words, what are some things that came to your mind? Okay, truth. Okay, relating truth of Scripture or the Bible to everyday life. Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's okay. Understanding biblical teaching. All right, those are great answers. 
and uh, they all fit. Um, when we think about Christian education, obviously one of the things that catches our attention immediately is the book, right? And so um, you probably are all familiar with the story of Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read the story of Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, that's great. So you know that when you open the book and begin reading, you are introduced to the character Christian. And Christian has a burden on his back that he needs to deal with, but he also has a book in his hand. And as you continue through the story, you realize that the book makes all the difference. The book makes all the difference. And through the story, uh, Christian encounters other people along the way. Some are travelers. They're not really pilgrims. The difference between the travelers and the pilgrims is that the pilgrims take the scripture, the book, and they apply it to their lives. The book makes all the difference. And I think we know this. We know this. But yet, if we dig a little deeper, what does that mean? How does that influence the way we approach Christian education? And so, if I was to ask you a second question, what role does the book play in education? Um, I'm not sure what answers you would give, but... um, Here's some more questions just to get you thinking, okay? Um, What place do the scriptures have in our schools? What place does the book have in our schools? And uh, right now I'm thinking about schools, but you can expand that to think of homes and uh, our community as a whole. Um, Do the scriptures change the way we do education? If so, how? What about... um, the stories we tell, is it that we tell Bible stories during story time? You know, so it's easy for us to think if we're going to do education by the book, then that means that we need to tell some Bible stories. So we do. We teach our lessons, but then we gather our children and we tell them a couple Bible stories. Is that what it means to do education by the book? Um, Is it that we start school in the morning or start our day as a family by quoting a verse together or singing a song instead of doing the Pledge of Allegiance? Is it that we have a Bible memory program? Is it that we have Bible verses on bulletin boards or maybe you could say post them around our house and hang them on the wall different places? Is that what it means to live by the book? Is it that we have a Bible verse on the school letterhead? Or maybe we like to put a Bible verse on our checks or some other place where we do business uh, and interact with people. Is that what it means to live by the book? I want to suggest that while all these things might have their place, that's not really getting at what it means to be to do education by the book or to be people of the book and we'll, let me explain scripture is primarily okay now I'm changing gears just a little bit but if we take this book and I'd say to you what is this what is this you would say things like it's the word of god and if I had to ask you what do you mean by that say more um, 
you would start giving me phrases. And some of the phrases that, that we sometimes use are, um, we say that Scripture is uh, law. Scripture's like law. Scripture's, um, it's like a roadmap. Scripture is, um, and we might even talk about specific kinds of genre that's in the book. We might say it's like poetry, uh, psalms, and there's proverbs. Um, we might say all these things. And, and that's all true. However, what Scripture is primarily a story. The law, the poetry, the prophecy, and all of those different kinds of literature are found in the context of a story. And that's why I want to use the phrase God's story this week. Because God's word is primarily a story. But sometimes we approach it in other ways. I have five up here. There's probably others that you can add to my list, but I think these are five ways that we wrongly approach the scriptures. The first one is we view it only as a roadmap, okay? Now, when somebody says that this is my roadmap, they're, they're building an analogy, and there's some truth in that analogy, okay? But, but it's more than that. And so some people view it as a set of rules or directions to tell us how to stay on a path, uh, to tell us how to, uh, to be like Christian and stay on the right path. If that's the way we approach the scriptures, I think we miss, we miss something very important. We'll talk more about that. Another wrong approach is that we, we sometimes refer to it as our nuggets of truth or our treasure chest. And uh, we say scripture is a collection of wonderful one-liners that add a bounce to my step in the day. So I'm going to get up and I'm going to get my little nugget of truth for the day and away I go. And uh, there are some great one-liners. There's some great verses. There's some great promises that just give us life, give us something to cling to. But if that's all that Scripture is to us, if that's the primary way we approach the Scriptures, then we, we miss something very important. Sometimes we say that it's like ink blots. Now, I um, doubt that anybody remembers these things, um, but in 1921, a gentleman came out with um, a test um, he devised this, this test to use to help identify what was going on in people's minds. And um, it was a psychology thing. And what it was is they'd, they'd have these ink blots on a piece of paper. And they would show them a series. They would show a person a series of 10 of these. And they would ask the person to, to um, indicate what they see in the ink blot. So the ink blot was really nothing except a bunch of ink. That's why it was called an ink blot. And a person would look at that and he would say, well, I see this. And the idea was that they're projecting onto the ink blot what was going on inside of them. Does that make sense? Some people approach the scriptures that way. Some people, they open the Bible and they read it. And then they tell the scriptures what it means. They project onto the scriptures what they're thinking and feeling. And they miss the point of the book. 
And so scripture cannot be an inkblot to the Christian or we, we lose the message of God. And so sometimes we might say, what does the scripture mean to you? And we expect somebody to tell us what it means to them. And we go to the next person, what does it mean to you? And all of a sudden we have five different things. And these, each person's just projecting on the scripture what they want it to say or what they think it says. And again, we miss the point of it all. And so scripture needs to be more than an inkblot. Sometimes we approach the scriptures like they're magical messages where we, we uh, need a word from God. We, we're trying to make a decision and we, we open our Bibles and we start flipping through the text looking for some kind of magical message where, you know, we can suddenly find an answer to our dilemma. And again, if we approach the scriptures that way, uh, we miss the point. Um, sometimes we just approach it like it's some kind of 12-step program where, you know, we have trouble in our life and we go to the scriptures and what's the steps to getting out of it here? What do we need to do? And sometimes uh, the whole what would Jesus do is, is part of that too, where it's just like, well, what do I got to do here? And uh, there's it's nothing wrong with asking the question, what would Jesus do? But if that's the only, if that's the primary way we approach the scriptures and we miss the point because the point isn't about doing, it's about being. Okay, it's not about a, a set of practices, but it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about a person, and we'll come back to that as well. So, God gave us stories. He gave us stories. And the stories he gave us are all part of a bigger framework, the overarching story of Scripture, which we will trace tomorrow evening. So, he gave us stories. <clears throat> I want to just take us on a little walk back through some stories. You'll remember uh, the children of Israel are in Egypt, and uh, God has intentions to deliver them from Egypt. And so he gives Moses direction, and um, they go through the plagues, you know all of that, and uh, it's time for the Passover. And God tells Moses, he says, You're gonna, the, the, um, the plague of death is going to come and those people who kill the lamb and take the blood and apply it to the, the header of the door and the posts of the door and then eat the lamb, the firstborn will live. Those who do not do that, they will die. And then he says, you and your descendants from every, for every generation are going to remember this evening. Once a year, you're going to gather together and you're going to eat this Passover meal. And so you know the story. That, that night, the death angel passed and there was crying all over Egypt as the firstborn died. But those who were under the blood lived. And for that time on, the Israelites would, once a year, they'd sit around the table and they'd tell this story. It was a story packed full of theology. God gave us stories. Well, 
God, through Moses, led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They came to the Red Sea, divided the Red Sea. And they go into Canaan, or they start moving towards Canaan. And you know the story. Um, They didn't have the faith to conquer Canaan. Um, And so, as a result, they ended up wandering for 40 years. At the end of their 40 years, um, they again start making preparation to enter into the land of Canaan, and they come to the Jordan River. And what's unique about the Jordan River when they're preparing to cross, some, cross it? Somebody call it out. I'm sorry? It was, it was flooded. It was at flood stage. And the Jordan River at flood stage is not just a trickling river. I grew up beside what's called the Middle Creek. And uh, sometimes it would really rain, and, and the Middle Creek would get high, and uh, it wasn't a real safe creek to play in. Um, but, you know, you could still wade across. Like, if you had to get through, uh, the water might be this deep, you know, it might come up to your chest, but you could get cro- across. But the Jordan River at flood stage in Bible times was a roaring, <laughs> mad river, And uh, I'm no expert on this, but from what I've read and learned, um, I understand that stepping off the banks into that river would have quickly put you over your head. It was dangerous. And what did God say? He said, "When, when the soles of the feet touch the river, I'll split it. Can you imagine the faith necessary? But anyways, they stepped in, God split the river, and the nation walked across the river. Um, now, the people of Canaan worshipped Baal, and Baal was uh, a god of fertility. And so, in a sense, who sends the rain? Baal. And uh, so, here you have God defeating this Canaanite god, just pushed it aside, and uh, walked right across. And the Israelites walked across. And then... Um, Moses, I'm sorry, this isn't Moses anymore. This is Joshua. I might've got mixed up earlier. Joshua told the people to, uh, get something out of the river. What were they supposed to get? Stones. So they got these big stones and they stood them up and it was very intentional. He said it's to be a memorial because someday years down the road, a grandpa will be fishing with his grandson And the grandson's going to say, hey, Grandpa, do you see those stones? They're kind of odd, aren't they? And uh, Grandpa would say, yes. You know what? Sit down. Let me tell you a story. A story packed full of theology. God gave us stories. But they're all part of one great big narrative, the biblical story. And so, we have Exodus 12, we have Joshua 4, we talked about those. I want to take us now to, um, well, one more thing yet before we go there. Um, The Hebrew calendar. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Hebrew calendar is largely based on stories. The children of Israel were supposed to commemorate things that God did. God's works on behalf of the people throughout history. And so every year they were supposed to stop. And largely it came down to telling the stories of God and his works on behalf of the people. 
And so God gave us all these stories. I want to take us to Psalm 78. And this is kind of the foundation for where we're, what we're going to be thinking about the rest of the week. Psalm 78. Now, this is a psalm of Asaph, and uh, I don't know if Asaph realized what he was doing when he was writing this psalm, but I think he just gave us a philosophy for education. Right here it is. Psalm 78. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. And so there we see these things that our fathers are going to be telling us. In verse 4, he says, we will not hide them from their children. We will not hide them from their children. Showing to the generation to come, notice what it says we're showing, the praises of the Lord. So we're telling stories about his deliverance, how he split the Red Sea, how he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, uh, how he help them cross the Jordan River and provide a manna for 40 years. So we're going to be showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. Verse 5, for he has established a testimony in Jacob. Now what's a testimony? A testimony is largely a story. If you are called to give a testimony to something, you're called to give an account. You're called to give a story, to give your side. And he says, He has established a testimony in Jacob, and that's Israel. God has established a testimony in Israel. Now, God has given us his revelation, but his revelation has been fixed into a a historical context, a historical narrative. God has packaged himself, his whole entire story, his all, I'm sorry, God has packaged his revelation into a story. And so he's established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. So here's our mandate. Our mandate is to make it known. Asaph says, your mandate is to make the story known. Now, there are other passages that talk about making the story known. I'm thinking of Deuteronomy 6. And uh, we have symbols. Uh, we're supposed to make the story known through symbols, speech, and, our, and the surroundings. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, that's what it is. Symbols, speech, and surroundings. As we go about life, we're called to uh, arrange life in, some, in such a way that we make the story known to our children. And so we're supposed to um, make the story known to the next generation. Verse 6, so that the generation to come might know them. But pay attention here. So that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who shall arise and declare them to their children. What a vision. What a vision. And so Asaph here was looking down the corridors of time and he's like, what we've got to do in education is we need to make a story known to the children. But he wasn't just thinking about his children. He was thinking about his children's children's children. 
He was thinking way down the the line. And that's what I want to call us to. We need to have a bigger vision for what we're doing. We need to have a bigger vision for the education we're providing to our children. And we need to start arranging life in such a way that we're being proactive in making the story known three, four generations down the line. And then we have three outcomes. Three outcomes in verse 6. That the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who shall arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And so here is the first outcome. In verse 7, he says that they might set their hope in God. I'm going to give you three C words here. The first one is confidence. Asaph says, we're going to have a generation of people that are confident. They set their hope in God. Do we need confident young people? We do. I'm not talking about a a self-confidence, a confidence that's based on human strength and human reasoning. I'm talking about a kind of courage. I'm not talking about arrogance. I'm talking about a kind of resolve, a confidence that says, my God is bigger, my God is able, and I am part of a greater, bigger narrative, and I'm going with him. In investing, we often say, don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? But when it comes to God's program, God's story, there's nothing like a bad investment. We go all in. We have the confidence that we can go all in. We set their hope in God. The second outcome is it says that they would not forget the works of God. And um, they have a sense of history, a sense of history. The C word here I'm giving you Uh, It's being manipulated a little bit. It's God consciousness. God consciousness. We need young people, and um, we all need to be this way, but I'm thinking about the generations to come. We need young people that are God conscious. What do I mean by that? Well, you know how in a picture we sometimes talk about backdrops? Somebody's getting their photograph taken. Uh, We pull a backdrop down. And uh, you have different backdrops you pull down, maybe for different types of um, photos. Um, God's story, God himself and who he is, needs to be the backdrop for every decision we make. The backdrop can change everything, right? And uh, maybe you've seen this already where somebody takes a photo, they change the backdrop and take another one, and all of a sudden... They look totally different because the backdrop changed. Well, we need to learn to see life in the context of God's story. We need to be God conscious. It says that they, that they forget not the works of God. They don't forget it. And that means that as they go about their daily lives and they're making decisions in business and family and all their responsibilities, they're remembering. They're remembering. They're not forgetting the works of God. And so God consciousness. The third one 
is, uh, says, but that uh, keep his commandments. And uh, they have a will to obey, a will to obey. And the C word I'm giving us here is commitment. We need young people uh, that are committed and uh, they're willing to stay the course. And uh, we often say that commitment is something we seem to be lacking today. And maybe it's, maybe it's because we are disconnecting from God's story and we're buying into a narrative that isn't ours and we're forgetting who we are. We don't know who we are because we've lost our place in God's story. We'll talk later on about what happens when people pull out of God's story. One of the things, I'll just it's confusion, a lot of confusion, and we see it in the world today. And so we want young people that have a will to obey. This is what God says. This is what God's asking, and I'm going to do it because I'm committed. I'm committed to follow. Now, you'll notice in verse 11, and is one example where it says, and they forgot his works. See, the rest of, of Psalm 78 reads like a sad commentary because Israel often forgot. They forgot these stories. And they didn't live uh, with a sense of God's work in their lives. They forgot who they were. And so verse 42 says, they remembered not his hand. And we read these verses. They didn't remember. Okay. And uh, we see what happened as a result. Our job is to make the story known. That's our mandate. And so at the beginning, I asked the question, I said, what's the essence of Christian education? The essence of Christian education is God's story it's learning to see everything in the context of God's story. And so when you do math, you're not just doing math. You're not just adding numbers. When you do science, you're not just doing experiments. When you do uh, English, you're not just uh, doing grammar. But you're learning to see everything in the context of the bigger overarching narrative, God's story. And everything changes when that's the backdrop. And so um, there's a, a lady named uh, Emily Smith, and uh, she's a psychologist of sorts, and uh, not a Christian that I'm aware of. Um, she comes uh, to us from, from a secular perspective. And uh, she's spent a chunk of her life or her career uh, investigating what it is that makes people happy. Why is it that some people are happy and some people aren't? And uh, I'm not sure how you investigate that and study that, but, but uh, she eventually said, ah, some people have meaning. Some people have meaning. And I thought, yeah, okay. This sounds good. Some people have meaning. And then she kept going. And this, this research was based on five years of study. And um, inter she interviewed hundreds of people. And she said there are four pillars to finding meaning. If we're going to have meaning in life, 
the first pillar is that we need to know we belong. We got to belong somewhere. We need to have a sense of belonging um, to people and to something. The second pillar, um, she said that people need to have a purpose. They need to know what they're doing and why they're doing it. They have to have some kind of purpose in life. The third thing, third pillar, she said, is transcendence. People need to be connected to something bigger. Now, I was, I was, I was really perking up when I heard these things because I'm like, yes, she's on to something here. When we're, when we are people of God's story, we belong and we know where we fit. We have a place, belonging. And then this thing of purpose. All of a sudden, we have a life of purpose too. It's not about us, but it's about our God and his agenda in the world. God's kingdom reclaiming and bringing more and more uh, the world into his, his will. And then the third one, transcendence. Um, we're part of something bigger. When we understand the story, we understand that that we're part of something much bigger. It's not just this what's happening here tonight, but we're part of a worldwide kingdom that transcends culture, language. We're part of something so much bigger. The fourth thing she said is storytelling. But this is what makes me sad. She said people need to have their own narratives they need to figure out their stories, a story that's positive. And I'm thinking, no, no. We don't need our own individual narratives. We are part of a bigger story. And it's not about my story. It's not about my narrative. It's about the overarching story of God in the world that my little story is found within and when I look at it in that context, all of a sudden my life begins to make much more sense and the world begins to make much more sense. And so I don't know if she realized it, but I think she was on to something. She thinks these four things are the pillars and necessary to find meaning in life. Let's just go with it and say she's on to something. Asaph said it in Psalm 78. We need to make the story known to our children. Tomorrow night, uh, we are going to look at what we mean by God's overarching story. And we are going to trace the story. And we're going to pull out some themes and pull out some high points along the way and try to think about what that means for us today. Thank you for your attention, and uh, I wish the Lord's blessing on you. Hopefully something I said tonight is helpful to you. And uh, Michael, I am finished.